This land is my land, this land is your land From California to the New York Island From the Gulf Stream water to your sparkling deserts This land belongs to you and me Well, that's as panoramic as they come. And as the man said, there is quite a lot of America, but we have to begin somewhere. So why not on the New York island, that is to say on the island of Manhattan? And here we have a native of Manhattan who has now come to live in Dublin, uh, Kevin Sullivan, former dean in Columbia University, and Sean J. White, who until recently spent some time in an office, bang, in the middle of Fifth Avenue, which some people regard as the centre of the universe. Fifth Avenue is a kind of core of Manhattan, not only of Manhattan, but I suppose of America, and uh, one did feel a big city feeling about Manhattan, but also one did feel the, uh, uh, the sort of extended village thing, that Manhattan is also a long series of villages, and in fact it was in... Um, Another of those villages, the village, that uh, Kevin Sullivan and myself met most frequently. We hardly ever met uh, uptown. We always tended to meet in the more comfortable environs of Greenwich Village. I think this is a necessity to have in New York a number of villages. Well, Kevin Sullivan, is uh, you're a native son, of course. Uh, yes, I was born in, uh, on Manhattan Island. I was born in the northern part of the island at 105th Street and Morningside Avenue. Uh, this has now become an integral part of Harlem. Though at the time it was a very it was a very Irish neighborhood. Though most of my adult life was spent in, as Sean says, in uh, Greenwich Village, which has a quality about it that is indeed that of a village within a city. Uh, Manhattan itself is the the central borough of the city, and uh, uh, sometimes people forget that uh, New York City is an island city. Uh, there is Manhattan, uh, there is Staten Island. And, of course, there's Long Island with the other two boroughs on it. Uh, the one part of the city that is also part of the mainland, so to speak, uh, is the Bronx. And uh, it's in the Bronx that I spent uh, my boyhood. Uh, and I had a rather depressing experience all here about five years ago. Uh, I was driving home from Columbia University one afternoon... And I saw this great sign called the uh, Bronx County Expressway. Uh, and I thought I would go over and see the old neighborhood that I had grown up in as a boy. It's around the Claremont Park section. I got over to that area, and I found that what had been, when I was a boy, a very lovely section of the Bronx. Indeed, when, I had, when the family first moved there, there were apple orchards across the street. Uh, there were cows grazing at the top of the street. Uh, there was a great house further up the street with, where people kept horses and manufactured horseradish. Um, this particular section of the city has now been covered with a great slab of macadam. And there are slums festering on either side of this, this highway. I mention it because I think it's one of the, one of the, uh, uh, the symptoms of a physical decay 
uh, that is coming up on various parts of the city. Of course, not confined to that city. No, it, it, uh, I'm afraid it, it's uh, happening our, in our own city too. Uh, we don't quite get the same stretches of macadam or the sort of, fierce of fearsomeness of highways and motorways, although looking at the new Cork traffic plan, one is a little uh, apprehensive as to what might happen in Cork, which is, to me, also a very delightful city and a city I've lived in and hold very dear, that the kind of flyovers and things could happen in Cork, as happened in so many American cities, as happened in the Bronx, as Kevin has described, and has taken the life completely out of a great number of cities in the Midwest of America. But just uh, Kevin uh, talking about his West Side upbringing, uh, I lived on the West Side in New York, and that was something we both had in common too, although we met in the village, we were both sort of radically West Siders, and this is a, a great uh, division in New York. Between you mean like North East Siders side. in Dublin? Right, East East side, west side, all around the town. Oh, yes, but east know. side is uh, predominantly now means fashionable, and west side means unfashionable. And the particular part of the west side I lived in, I suppose you would describe as a kind of Jewish intellectual ghetto inhabited by people like Andre Kostelanitz and... Uh, and his orchestra. And his orchestra, <laughs> all of them. Uh, Mark Connolly, the playwright, yes. Paulo Dewar, Padre Colum, Jim Downey. It was another kind of extended village, mostly people in the arts, people in music and uh, such trades along Central Park West. Sounds like an extended Grafton Street area to me. A, a little bit. That, uh, Grafton Street, perhaps, and Baggett Street combined. That's Gothic, the kind of area it was. But it had been, funnily enough, too, before I went there, it had been an Irish community. And this was visible still in the church, the parochial structure. Uh, Our church, uh, Holy Trinity, had an Irish pastor and uh, a very determined, uh, quite recognisable Irish parish priest character, although he was American, a little authoritarian, but very human at the same time. But his parishioners now were mostly Puerto Rican. And, uh, in fact, there was even uh, another grade who were depressed in turn by the Puerto Ricans. They were the Haitians who just came in. And you had a good example of this in the way masses were arranged. Uh, The uh, sort of best hours for mass were English masses, slightly less good hours, and I presume this is the pastor's arrangement, went to Spanish masses. And finally, at half past two in the afternoon, was the French mass for the Haitians. (laughs) (laughs) The melting pot. Uh, has New York melted really into a... Is there, there is, isn't there, a single New York thing in spite of all these, these shades and colours? No, I don't, uh, I don't believe there is no? at all. Um, even if you just, uh, just consider Manhattan Island itself, uh, Sean had been talking about the west side. Well, you take the upper part of, the, uh, of Manhattan Island, uh, the west side there, beginning at around uh, 96th Street, say, uh, where Columbia, Uni- well, Columbia University begins around 114th. But here you have an academic uh, section of the city, uh, north of which you have a, uh, a kind of middle, middle class section, largely Irish and Jewish. And of course, to the east of that, east of Manhattan at that section, is Harlem, right? the world's greatest ghetto. Uh, in the uh, in the centre uh, of the city, and what, what I mean by the centre of the city here, the centre of Manhattan Island, between, let us say, uh, 14th Street and, uh, and 90, 96th Street, the east side here is the east side that, that uh, Sean has been talking about, the fashionable uh, east side. Um, as a matter of fact, when I was uh, living in New York, uh, I was teaching at Columbia University, and um, uh, spending a good deal of time in the village, having indeed living in the village for, for many years. And one had to lead a kind of schizophrenic life. 
it was very seldom that I that I found myself uh, in the centre of New York. I'd either be in the northern part of the of the island in an academic community, uh, or I would be in Greenwich Village. Uh, and the great attraction of Greenwich Village, of course, is not. I, I talk about the Greenwich Village not of the tourists, uh, but of the one section of New York that is still a neighbourhood, you know, where you can walk out in the streets, as you walk out in the streets here in Dublin, and you'll see friends, you know, and you'll know where they live. Uh, and you're, it, it's, a, it's a quality of the section of the city that is not true of the east side, for example, or much less, I think, Sean, of the, uh, of the west side. Well, I agree this is true about Greenwich Village, but, uh, you know, the cliches about everywhere, you know, the Irish ones, if you walk along O'Connell Street, you'll meet everybody in Dublin, you know, or meet everybody in Ireland, you know, but I've had this experience walking along Fifth Avenue, meeting Irish people, meeting English people I didn't know were in America, and uh, I think um, the other cliche, of course, of this bustling, uh, unfriendly city, uh, certainly there's violence and certainly there's pressure, but also I think the people of New York in my book, are a very friendly people. And uh, you find in stores and in restaurants and bars and shops, generally you find a degree of friendliness and uh, tendency to help you out and give you information or to talk that uh, the, doesn't exist in the cliché at all. Uh, that, in fact, you can also see people on Fifth Avenue, recognise people on Fifth Avenue, perhaps not as much as the village, but you certainly can. I, th- I think you're right, it is, that it is a friendly city. Uh, they succeed, however, in concealing their friendliness to an extraordinary extent. However, do you know there was a crisis there about about six years ago in the great blackout in the fall of 1965. Now, that was an example in which the, the friendliness, indeed the affection of the city, came out. <clears throat> you'd find people uh, who would uh, who ordinarily you'd cross to the other side of the street if you saw them. Um, but uh, during that blackout, here, were, here, here they were out in the middle of the street taking the place of cops, uh, everyone trying to help everybody else. The most extraordinary manifestation well, of, 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 of a, a, a civic, uh, civic yeah. relationship. London during the Blitz. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I, missed the, I missed that blackout. I arrived in America just after that, but the stories were still current. Everybody had their blackout night story, rather like the Londoner and the Blitz. It was uh, New York's finest hour, one gathered. But there was even a more recent one there, which uh, actually occurred, I think, since I've been here and since you've come over here, Kevin, that was the police strike. And I think, again, there was a police strike there for quite a number of days, and I think it's quite inconceivable that a city as overtly violent as New York should, in fact, conduct its business and should go on in a lawful way about its business with the, with the police on strike. That is remarkable. You know, there's one question, though, that I feel one was at the back of all our minds, and it has to come out. You know, it has been suggested over and over again by people who are not normally alarmists that New York is... Tragically, the example, uh, uh, with all the splendid things that can be said about that, it's, that it is perhaps the first example of the city running down, the, the city thing, the city, the machine that is a city not going, not beginning not to work. And how far do you think this is true? Well, I th- I've been under the impression for the past couple of years that New York is, is as it presently constituted, Ungovernable, simply ungovernable. Uh, you know the um, uh, the motto I think during the summer is New York is a city festival. Well, by God, it's nothing nothing of the sort. Uh, Mayor Lindsay might be a, a son of a festival, uh, but the uh, though I think the man uh, is is incompetent. Uh, I doubt very much whether you'd have anybody 
who would be able to run a city of that size and that complication yes. at all. I'm not talking about violence or that sort of thing now at all. I'm simply talking about the services. Is it possible, yes. Is yeah. it possible on that scale to maintain yeah. that sort of service? Well, I remember Brenda Bean once saying about Toronto, it would be a fine city when they had built it, when they had finished it. I have a feeling about New York that it really never was finished and that the, these kind of troubles have occurred at all stages of its career. Uh, I'd also, uh, I think, take issue with Kevin on the uh, Summer Festival and Mary Lindsay aspect of his remarks, because I know Lindsay has a hell of a job. That was a Democrat talking. But, uh, well, Lindsay is not a very Republican, Republican, is he? I think he's more a Democratic Republican. That's what I have against him. Just from my experience of the sort of summer in New York, and I have spent two summers actually in New York, right in the centre, and uh, I lived quite near Central Park, and the Lindsay administration had organised some wonderful things there, like open-air concert, open-air opera. I have been at an opera in the Sheep in Central Park with 3,000 people sitting down on the grass, having their supper and listening to the best of opera at the same time. That was free, uh, no tickets, no, and it was very well controlled, and uh, there, was, there was no, no, there was no uh, either problem of either violence or crowding. Well, it would, be typical, it would be typical of an administration with a man like Lindsay at its, at its head that he would supply luxuries before he'd supply necessities. Let him collect the garbage before he provides concerts in the parks. Bread before circuses, circuses before bread. It's the oldest of all the urban problems. The Romans had a word for it. Robin Roberts was singing a while ago that that land was her land. Robin, of course, that city is your city too. Yes. It took me a long time to admit it uh, because I'm a Westerner from Utah, but I've, I've lived there most of my life, when I'm not here, that is. And uh, I'm very fond of New York, especially when I'm out of it. <laughs> After three months, I think it might be a decent place to go back and live for the winter. How do you how do you feel about what our pundits were saying? Oh, don't get me on that. Uh, there are many things I disagree with. I I do feel that there is a a West Side kind of neighborhood. I feel it very strongly. I I'm an actor mainly, and I'm always meeting other actors in that neighborhood. Oh, between 90th Street, say where I live, and 70th, because it's cheap. It's always been fairly cheap on the west side. All the theaters on the west side, the various, the little theaters, the actor's studio, the dance studios, all of them. We never, the east side is, we wouldn't think of going over there. <laughs> you know. Well, then it's, it's, it's such a friendly city, although the, when there was a reference to a friendly city, I, I think you said under your breath there, when you were listening, you were saying, mm, yeah, if you're not mugged. Uh, yes, well, we have a policeman on our block that we pay for. And it's a good idea. He's utterly harmless, and he doesn't carry a weapon, but he's there walking back and forth with a uniform. And I was mugged by a cat. (laughs) It's the only mugging I've ever had. He ran out of an alley and tore my leg up in little pieces, and I was standing there sort of hollering for this man. He said, heavens, I'll call the police. So he came back after about 15 minutes and said the line was busy. (laughs) So I had to fend for myself. But I figured it was because I was rehearsing Macbeth and there's a curse, you know. Ah, yes, yes. But uh, many friends of mine have been mugged, and they're all rather nice about the muggers for some reason. Well, one of my friends had her kneecap broken, and she said, oh, well, it wasn't his fault, I slipped. <laughs> so you support your friendly neighborhood mugger. Yeah, well, a lot of them are very poor little nervous fellows that, who want their fix, you know, mm-hmm. and there you are, a big grown-up and so on. You say, well, just take it easy. And a friend of mine did this and said, uh, here's the money, but please give me back my identification, which he did. All this, I presume, is all very well provided you're... What does the song say? If you're white... How do, how do, if you're white... 
It's all You're right. all right. How does that go? Oh, there was a big Bill Brunsey song a long time back. Um, sort of went, If you're white, that's all right. If you're brown, stick around. But if you're black, oh, brother, stand back, stand back, stand back. The um, tragedy and the comedy of the black-white relationships have been sung all over the place, of course. Yeah, yeah. The, um, of course, the situation has greatly changed now, and anybody who says it hasn't is wrong. In some ways, it's worse. But I think, from a point of view of the dignity of the black people, it's much, much better, because they literally have stood up. You know, and they're saying, this is my right, and I'm going to have it. And uh, the, the difficulty was for some of us to get it to calling our f- friends, who were, you know, practically as light as maybe lighter. <laughs> my, bl- you know, he's black and you know when they're not black at all but it's a it's a kind of badge of honor because negro has be- become a term meaning middle class uh, uncle tom in a way mm-hmm. so you say uh, well so and so is black even though you know she may not be or he may not be it's all different from the days of jim crow i mean it, as you say it, it could be possibly worse i mean that's a matter for argument but it's 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 different i, th- I think it's better mm-hmm. because yeah. people are uh, Really, you know, you've got a lot of black people, you know, senators and congresswomen and so on in Washington really standing up and being articulate. You have an awful problem now of unemployment among blacks and whites and mostly among blacks. And you wonder, you know, why these guys become violent and go around creating trouble. You have 30% of your black youth unemployed. You've got a big problem. Mm. But they're not sitting back and saying, well, that's the way it is, you know. Yeah. They're saying you do something about it. Uh, the problem is about as easy, as simple, as tractable as the problems of the north of Ireland. But um, two outside sympathetic observers here now on this question of colour and race. In the United States, um, Senator John Horgan, who is a frequent visitor, and um, an English novelist uh, who lives in New York and is on a brief visit to Ireland, Wilfred Sheed. Um, well, I think that uh, Americans are probably uh, less racist than most people would be given the opportunity. I remember when the English used to sneer at the American race situation. You may find it hard to imagine an Englishman sneering <coughs> before they found one of their own, and the French likewise. Uh, in general, Americans are used to an improvised sort of society in which anybody can move in or move out. But when they settle down, it does come to a question of who gets the good houses. So I would say, particularly in the North, um, it's a real estate question, as many questions are in America. The South is very, very difficult to, uh, to type. I, I had a story written by a student of mine at Princeton, from, and he was from the South, and it was about a young fellow returning home and embracing a Negro friend in the street. And I asked whether this was common practice, and he looked at me as if I was mad. Of course it was. And yet most Northerners um, would have the understanding that Southerners wouldn't do that. On the other hand, when it comes to coming into the house, uh, there the line would be drawn. They would be uh, friendly. You know, the sort of day-to-day commerce is is, uh, very mellow and pleasant, I would say, in the South. But uh, there is this thing about uh, not allowing them across the... You allow them in the kitchen, but not in the front. Uh, how did you see it when you were there, John? How did you did this strike you? Did you? I, I suppose that you know, my, my impression, which is a very fleeting one, would back up what Wilfred is saying 
very strongly. My first experience of America was of of New York and the East Coast, where uh, the whole race problem was a frightfully uh, an angst-ridden thing. Uh, and later on, when I went to the South, uh, I, I, you know, it was easy to feel that things were in some ways so much worse, and yet in some ways so much better. Uh, I often wonder whether this was simply the question of relative population pressures, that the places I was in in the South were small town or even rural areas, uh, in which you could identify the problem in terms of individual people rather than in terms of of huge blocks of people, uh, as in in the cities in the North. which would uh, suggest that at least part of the problem is the problem of urbanization, alienation, and, and loss of personal identity. We thinking of people as blocks of humanity rather than as people. You know? Yes, I, I, I was saying also to Wilfred just just a moment ago that I think there are probably areas, even in the even in the, the crisis city areas, uh, on the fringes, uh, where there is a de facto integration of a sort. Uh, my, my, my sister lives in a, in a place on the, in the village which, is, which, is, which has three-way integration, if you like, between Puerto Ricans, blacks, and European Americans. And uh, this seems to be quite, quite natural and work, be working quite well. It may, be either, it may be on the way to deintegration, either one way or the other, but for the time being, at least in a tiny little pocket, it seems to be working. But that is in, in Greenwich Village? In, well, in, in, in Greenwich Village, just on the fringes of Greenwich Village. Yes, yeah. where people would be slightly different anyway, wouldn't they, about this sort of thing? Wouldn't their attitudes be different? Well, I don't know. I, I suppose they would be to a certain mm. extent, yes. Tell me this, though. Do you feel that, um, Wilfred, uh, that this, um, the old master-servant relationship, or almost owner <laughs> and owned relationship, I mean, by which people refer to our Negroes, you know, this classic thing in the South, is that, has the disappearance of that uh, left a, a terrible vacuum? Is this really what, that the whites are sort of looking around for the, you know, for somebody to belong to, or to somebody to have belonging to them? Well, I don't know that much about the South. If I could just stick to the North for a minute, and, and to John's point, um, the the... Places like Greenwich Village uh, are mixed neighborhoods in a very much more general sense. Uh, the average American suburban life is stratified in so many ways. You, you find these liberals who have no Negro friends and are ashamed of it and try, try to find some. But uh, in point of fact, they don't have uh, friends of, a different, of any different sorts. Uh, their friends are drawn from their own kind of job. And... Uh, Meeting a Negro uh, would be no more difficult than uh, than meeting a you know a blue collar worker or something of that kind. So as you fan out from the city, you find more and more stratified uh, communities. And I think that the race problem has somehow uh, crossed this. Mm. You know uh, the old saying that uh, Negroes are, are were invisible, yeah, just the way we in Ireland. Uh, and the Protestants were invisible. On, on another level, that uh, travellers, itinerants, were invisible, or if visible, only as part of the scenery, the landscape. Is there? A, do you think that we perhaps our our attitudes towards itinerants have certain parallels with the, some American attitudes towards blacks? Yes, in in the sense that there there are problems which occupy the public consciousness only intermittently and uh, very often uh, 
quite in a manner which is quite unrelated to their relative importance in society. Uh, I, I think it's, it's it, I, I don't I don't know that one can stretch the parallel too far, but you know I, I would agree with you that this this does happen very often in this country. Has the the, uh, the Black Power movement, which which took over from just the advancement of the coloured people idea, has this Black Power movement has it lost impetus recently? Do you think it seems to ever suggest that it's working way more quietly and isn't hitting as many headlines? Well, I think the consensus is that it never had terrific uh, influence among the blacks themselves. Uh, it used to be the uh, the joke of non-black power blacks that they couldn't get out ten votes. Stokely Carmichael would be absolutely worthless. His, ho- his only particular value was as a goad to the white community. And in some ways, the, the black rage, which has now become a stereotype, is uh, the other side of the comic black servant. Um, Black insolence is now a stereotype as being a funny Negro used to be. Mm. Could, could I come in on this and, and wonder whether there's something in in this isolationism of, of black power, which which has a parallel here too in in abstentionist political movements, uh, which gain a tremendous aura of romanticism from their abstentionist um, tactics, but really neglect the basic political tasks in society of, of educating people to change their own options. Yes, the reformist task, the the revolutionary sneering against reform. Is that your idea? No, no, not necessarily. I would say that um, uh, you, you can be a revolutionary and not be an abstentionist. Uh, what I'm talking about is, is you know, the kind of abstentionist, uh, self-created ghetto in which uh, they can they safeguard the, the purity of, the stu- of of aims and purpose mm. by refusing to contaminate it with anything that might normally be described as politics. Mm. Do you think that's fair enough? Well, yes, the, the, a cynical centrist Negro, um, such as uh, Claude Brown, uh, would say that because these people um, cannot get out their own people's vote, they say the vote is worthless, that uh, the political process is worthless. Um, oddly enough, the, the most uh, intelligent Negro political activity would be in the South, where uh, they have, in fact, taken over a large wing of the Democratic Party. And one of the things that I suppose passed unnoticed in the uh, Democratic Convention in 1968 and was was uh, quite thrilling if you've been following this for a long time was that the Mississippi uh, delegation voted uh, the peace plank and voted for Eugene McCarthy. This would have been unheard of ten years ago. Yes. So uh, monoliths do crack. Yes, I think where they find that that uh, political activity is useful, immediately they see the point of it. Um, when it's not, then they start ranting. Do you think there is a future, then, for this sort of slow process of, as you said, educating people to to be able to choose their options? I, I would think so, and to come right back to the beginning, uh, I, I would, wouldn't be ultimately as, uh, as pessimistic you know, about the race situation in the States uh, as, as, as many outside observers are. How do you feel, though, the general question of the other America, does this tie in with the question of the other America, poor America, and how, how, how large a problem is this and how intractable a problem is it? Well, there's one sense, um, I suppose capitalism is the enemy, but capitalism has uh, certain compensating advantages, and it is people like Nelson Rockefeller and so on who are, who are building banks and so on in Harlem because they would like to have another market there. 
And uh, it rather astonished me about the northern situation here, which uh, Ms. Devlin considers a classic capitalist oppression, um, that if they were real capitalists, that is to say uh, fanatical uh, moneymakers, um, they would not uh, want such a disintegrated situation to last. Yes, I, perhaps uh, perhaps what um, Ms. Devlin doesn't say, uh, sufficiently differentiate between is a sort of proto-capitalism inherent in feudalism and the... Uh, yes, it seems like a feudal today, situation yes. to me, the yes. North. But you do think that, the, that this problem of poverty in America, uh, which does, in fact, which of course has been so much the problem of black America to, to an oh, extent, yes. do you feel that this is gradually being er- eroded? Uh, uh. Well, the, uh, there is now a black middle class of the most excruciating respectability um, who are certainly as uh, narrow in their lives as the white middle class. And this, the, uh, the problem with these people is that uh, as well as being more able than their brothers, they tend to separate from their brothers. These are the ones who will not help the black movement in any way. So that the, the split between the successful and the unsuccessful blacks um, is, is one of the things that the black power people are goading at within their own people. They are saying you're an Uncle Tom, in other words. That's what Uncle Tom is about. I'd say that this, this, this provokes another split, which perhaps is a little bit overdue in the ranks of the white liberals, between those who do see this, the, situa- the, the question essentially as a question related to uh, poverty, wealth, and so on, and those uh, who, I, I count some of my friends among them, who have suddenly discovered, see their main aim as the creation of a black middle class. Uh, as, as a solution to the problem, which of course it is in their terminology, uh, but not necessarily in, in everybody else's. Uh, and, and this does set up tensions even within the, uh, the white liberal camp, and I think this is quite a good thing, sorting people out. I'm going back to that red clay country I'm going back to that red clay country I'm going back to that red clay country That's my home, baby That's my home Well, old Hannah Come to the window Well, old Hannah, come to the window. Well, old Hannah, come to the window. Wave goodbye, baby. Wave goodbye. This old hammer made of silver. This old hammer. Made of silver rings like gold, baby. Rings like gold. Take this hammer, throw it in the river. Take this hammer, throw it in the river. Take this hammer, throw it in the river. Keep on ringing. 
this old hammer John Henry this old hammer John Henry killing me says a good deal more than perhaps any of us could say in half an hour's conversation about the subject. Do you think so? I like that song because uh, it expresses two things. I'm never going to get this big hammer out of my hand because there's nowhere to go, even if I throw it in the river. But I love my place that I come from, that red clay country. You know, there is great love mm. among the black people from, you know, the South. And even by God, Harlem. You know, <laughs> be a nice place to live if they just uh, clean out the heroin and the rats and the garbage. Yeah. John Henry is a great folk hero, of course, really, isn't he? Yeah. It's one of our few really indigenous ballads. And the, the, the line that uh, they use for the film, a man ain't no- nothing but a man, is uh, you know, very, very poetic. You know, how far does a figure like that command loyalty? How far, or how far is he a party symbol, you know what I mean? A party symbol. Well, you know what I mean by a party. I don't mean democratic, republican. I mean, but you know the way in which a noble thing can become a party thing. Mm. And it does, would America, is there a way in which John Henry, everybody would say, would be proud to? Yes. Yes. I think John Henry is, you know, beyond being a black hero, is an American hero like Paul Bunyan or whatever, Billy the Kid. We have an awful lot of outlaws that are heroes. Even among your so-called silent majority? Yes, I think so, insofar as they listen to folk songs. I, I think a lot of uh, a lot is misunderstood about the silent majority or whatever it is. Um, as Jack DC was saying, you know, you shouldn't put down those people. They're very decent people. They're, they're, they feel they aren't being represented, and uh, they're sort of chomping at the bit because things are going bad for them as it is for everybody in, the, in a country that's at war, where you have a lot of problems with their good fellows in that you know, among those hard hats. And I've always felt that people who worked together had a lot more in common than people, you know, of the same, you know, whether they were black or white or, you know, class-wise. You know, leaving aside the term silent majority, uh, does the, the, the ordinary, uncommitted person, you know, the people who don't, in fact, who haven't made their minds up on things, you know, in any country, it's, there's a problem as to how far... You said people listen to folks, and how far do people listen to anything? I, I put this question the other day to, you know, Harry Reasoner. He's right, a, yeah, surely. Anchorman on one of your... Uh, ABC. ABC uh, News. And I asked him, did he think, like, I mean, that, you know, do the media, in fact, influence public opinion? In fact, do people listen? Oh, I think so. I suppose every journalist gets discouraged over a period of time when you... Uh, write or broadcast something which seems clear and simple to you, and then the mail indicates that people are just not listening at all. 
But I, I think that's a small percentage. I think people do listen. I have a feeling that uh, in the United States, and I suspect throughout the English-speaking world, that we've got the best informed mass citizenry in history. I don't, I'm not talking about the intellectuals who read all the little magazines. But uh, your average man, I think, now knows more about his world than he ever did before. There's some who wonder whether that's a good thing or not, because it certainly produces action. I think of, uh, well, particularly in our case, of the Vietnam War. Whereas in the 19th century, England could run a little war in India for two or three years at a time, and uh, nobody paid much attention, even though there would be substantial casualties. But what you got was a rather dramatic and, and romantic account in the time six weeks after the event. In Vietnam, Americans have had to look at the war night after night in their living rooms and hear about it. And I suspect that's why it's caused so much pain and sorrow in the, in the national character, is because the first war anybody's ever seen. Well, that's public opinion. When we started um, to get involved heavily in Vietnam in uh, 1965, I, I think the citizens, like uh, any patriotic citizens, you assume your government is doing the right thing and you support it. And uh, a poll at that time would have indicated probably 80% support for presidential policy. Well, the polls now indicate 75% against presidential policy. And that's purely the result of being informed, not, uh, not swayed. Not, I'm not talking about a biased advocacy, but just the fact that people know now. But a cynic might say it took a hell of a long time. Well, it did. But I think you're dealing with things which are very hard to change. It's... Um, I suppose maybe uh, Irishmen are more sophisticated than Americans about governments. <laughs> you've had more, and you've gone through more turmoil, and you've had foreign government. Uh, it took a long time for Americans to come to the conclusion that their government had made a mistake. Further, we're, we're traditionally supposed to be a highly moral nation, and we're traditionally always supposed to win. We are the straight shooters. Uh, it's hard for a country to realize that you've done something wrong and admit it, and to realize that you've lost and admit it. A, a sudden shift, or what appears to be a sudden shift, although anybody who's reading the signs of the times knows it wasn't all that sudden, but an apparently sudden shift in policy, like the uh, rapprochement between China and the United States, or at least the beginnings of a rapprochement with, with uh, President Nixon's projected visit to Peking and all that. How do you think, how will that, as they say, grab the ordinary listener, ordinary viewer, or reader? Well, I think the first place they're curious. Uh, everybody in, in the United States has been curious about China. And we've lived with this artificial policy, uh, which nobody really believed in at any high level in government, Republican or Democratic. We've lived with it for 15 years, and I suppose now people are... It's something interesting, and they don't see any particular danger in it. I'm... Uh, I'm always suspicious of sudden shifts, aren't you? I don't believe there are such things, yeah. really, no, no. And if they are, they're probably ill-advised. Uh, in other words, if, uh, if communist China was a huge villain last year, she is probably whatever she was. I mean, she has not changed. So I, I, uh, I cited a little bit uh, with our vice president, Mr. Agnew, who said that just because of a couple of ping-pong games is no reason we should forget with whom we were dealing uh, I don't suppose anybody will forget, but do you think that that old and uh, much abused, but in the long run not unuseful concept, the balance of powers, will perhaps guarantee, is there, I mean, let's say even just hopefully, 
guarantee perhaps another few years of peace. I hope so, and I, sus I suspect that a, f a feeling about that is what's moving China uh, uh, out of isolation into uh, some kind of rapprochement with a lot of countries, not only the United States. But I think perhaps she had begun to feel that the balance was too heavily on the side of a friendly Russia, uh, friendly to, to the West. And I, uh, I suspect this is more of China's doing than ours. Uh, we, have been, we have been sort of waiting to be invited. And at the first invitation, we apparently leap at it. But you don't stand to lose anything by it. I don't see how you, I don't see how you ever lose by talking, by being, uh, by having some kind of intercourse. Mm. But do you think again? Are you not the voice of sanity, the voice of um, the open-minded, liberal-minded man, liberal even with a small L? Do you? Is there not that hardcore there? At least we, from where we sit, we get this impression, perhaps distorted, that right across America there is a hardcore which says. Why should we talk to them? It's a very hard core, but uh, both of our hard cores, to, to create an impossible kind of fruit, both of our hard cores on the right and left are quite small. They're uh, very vocal, and they're very unyielding, but they're very small. I don't suppose that uh, the kind of people who believe that it's very dangerous to America to have anything to do with communist countries, I don't suppose they would account for more than 2 or 3% of the population. A lot of people voted for Mary Goldwater. Yes, but I'm, uh, I know Senator Goldwater very well, and of course he would be enthusiastic about opening up conversations with China, I'm sure, without having seen him quoted. Uh, Mary Goldwater is a, a firm man who believed that you're in a war, you should win it, and he believed uh, uh, in a great deal in, in the responsibility of the individual as opposed to a welfare state, but he is no, by no means a, a dinosaur. <laughs> well, certainly the the Pentagon Papers revelations show that he was by far the, the, the uh, he was by no means the most hawk-like. Well, he has, uh, Senator Goldwater has a great disadvantage for an American politician. I suspect the same is true here is that he is candid and, and almost certainly prevents the ultimate success if you are candid. <laughs> yes, well, I think we'd all grant him candor. Uh, Robin, you had, I think, left uh, the States before the announcement about the Peking meeting uh, you were there, of course, when the ping-pong politics had begun. Yes. But uh, in general, about the Indochina situation, did you feel that the mood of America was one of hopelessness, or was, did, was there light seeming to break through? Well, it's very hard to say, because there's both. Um, there's a feeling of, well, we're maybe almost getting out of there, and then you turn around and think, oh, will it never, never end with the, you know, more planes going into bomb all the time, even though troops are coming out? And I think it was Abrams said the other day that the soldiers were beginning to feel, oh, well, it's almost over, let's relax, and then, you know, somebody throws a bomb and that's the end. It's, a, it's the weariest thing that ever happened to our country, and our economy is a mess because of it. And I think, you know, people now feel, everybody, let's get out. I, I don't know anybody who, who wants to stay there except the guys who can't get heroin any other place, which is a terrible problem. Well, of course, one can be moralistic, and one can say it shows the futility of all war, really. Oh, boy, does it. Yeah, but, uh, but this one, of course, has its special horrors. But certainly the, the mood, uh, the old mood by which, uh, if you were against the war in Vietnam, you were some sort of a dropout, has gone, hasn't it? Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Um, in general, of course, the pendulum between hope and hopelessness, between uh, great faith in the future and 
moods of cynicism and despair. They're, they're not just proper to America, I suppose. One of the things we, of course, in a country like Ireland, forget about America is, again, this thing that it's so big and it has to include so many kinds of people. And you, you must have a sense of that yourself when you're, when you're there, when you're commuting as you do between a country like Ireland and America. Well, of course, America, I think, is much more standardised than Ireland so that you can go, you know, a thousand miles and, and find yourself in the same town that you left, practically. And everybody, as uh, Harry Reasoner was saying, listens to the news. Nobody reads newspapers because there aren't any except the Times, really. And uh, the whole... The whole country is fairly standardised. I think you find um, greater courtesy and people taking more time, you know, as you get farther west. And I don't mean California because that's, you know... <laughs> Although you must be careful because to complete our panorama now, we have well, somebody from California, that's Professor Tom Flanagan, who's uh, head of the English department in Berkeley, and Benedict Kiley, who spent uh, some time as writer-in-residence in in a number of American universities. Uh, Just the other day, I got an invitation from a university debating society uh, from some young young lady who thought that because of some articles I had written about the states in a newspaper that I might be a desirable person to oppose a motion. And the motion was that the um, American dream has become the American nightmare. Now, I'm rather against such, since my days in college, always against these confining and, uh, if I may make a slightly vulgar pun, binding motions that you get in college debating societies. Uh, What would interest me would not be a stereotyped argument of this sort, but um, an attempt um, by somebody so experienced as our good friend here um, of the different shades of meaning between dream and nightmare, the different colours and varieties of life our good friend being uh, Professor Tom Flanagan. But uh, do you regard these pol- polarities as being valid at all? Is there such a thing as an American dream? I'm not sure whether or not they are valid as polarities, but I do think that it is, it is meaningful that people tend to think in those terms, that if there had not been so much talk about an American dream in the past, there would be no need to talk about an American nightmare now that in a certain sense America has always been a, a, a metaphysical country that has moved toward absolutes and has spoken of the American dream. And the other side of the coin of a dream is a nightmare. It's certainly a phrase that you hear elsewhere than in Queens. It's a phrase that you hear often used in America now, and it must have some content to it. And what is the American dream? Or is it possible to sum it up? Is it all that was meant? and symbolised in the Statue of Liberty in the, in the notion of the fusion of many races and many ideas. Is it that sort of thing, do you think? Well, of course, we on this side of the Atlantic and uh, very particularly in this country have been great sharers in the American dream. All the European peoples have, otherwise there wouldn't be so many people in the United States, quite simply. America was the new life. America was the new world. America was opportunity. America was a definition of freedom as against the great absolutist monarchies. America has been all this for so long to so many people. As recently as 1945, uh, many, many European countries were so glad to see America once again as coming as the symbol of liberation. And this, uh, to me, to the European mind, this would have constituted the American dream over the centuries. And is that the way the American looks at it? I think that, that for an American, perhaps one of the great books dealing with the American dream is The Great Gatsby. Fitzgerald uses the phrase, and in the, in the context of that novel, 
the American dream means an endless future, stretching out as a kind of vista toward which Gatsby stretches his arms. But Gatsby's dream becomes a nightmare. Part of, part of Fitzgerald's meaning is that when you commit yourself that fully toward that kind of a dream, you end with a nightmare. I, I think it's interesting that no, nobody has ever talked about the French dream or the Yugoslavian dream or the English dream. It's always the American dream. I wonder. Uh, we had, actually, there may not be an Hungarian dream. Uh, there is an Hungarian rhapsody, of course. But uh, <laughs> we had an Irish dream. We probably still have it. With Hungarian <laughs> roots, as I recall. <laughs> but, uh, Shades of Arthur United, yeah. free, prosperous, and Talov Gonchius, and the Lord knows what else was part of our dream. Uh, we can manage to produce our own varieties of nightmares, too, and aren't doing too badly just at the present moment. But... Um, the vast scope of America, the great size of it, the trouble about a dream is that it must end. No country, however large, however great its resources, uh, but must come to the time when those resources may be overtaxed and misused. Uh, to that extent, American power, because so many young people and so many people in this country and in every other country consider as being misused, just as the power of absolutism was in the past. This is the coming into the nightmare from the dream. The great American resources are being misapplied and misused. Is yes, that the way it yes, be? yes. If, if, if by resources you mean, as you do, I think, emotional and passional resources as well as material resources, yes. I, but there is pervasively and increasingly in America a sense that something has gone badly wrong. And there used not to be that sense. And I think that this uh, persuasion or conviction or hunch is the emotional content behind that admittedly ludicrously overstated proposition that the dream has become a nightmare. A, a feeling that something has gone off the track, that something has gone wrong, and that various possibilities of American life have been um, blocked out, checked. And do you think that this is a, a matter of waking up or stirring in sleep? You know, is, there a, is this a facing of realities, or is it the vague disturbings of people who are a bit bewildered as things rushing around them in the kaleidoscope of a dream? Well, what I would like um, Sean to ask Professor Tom Flanagan here is, um, I wonder, even in the worst um, days of the Depression, was there that sense of disillusion, uh, the same sense that there is now? There certainly was a sense, and it, it, it was a severe sense. It was accompanied, though, by a kind of optimism, which had always been inherent in... Um, America, a notion that somehow things would right themselves, that things had temporarily gone off the rails, but that they would move on the rails again, because at least people knew what was what was wrong. It was a specific economic calamity, although certainly it had it had roots deep in the society, but, but essentially it was economic. Here it is more um, more vague, more general. And interestingly enough, it, it affects in different ways Americans of very different 
political opinions. It affects radicals in one way. It affects conservatives in another way. But you don't get the kind of bouncing conservative talk that you used to get as recently as five years ago. Uh, middle America is uh, alarmed as it was not alarmed five years before. A certain disillusion. Yes. A pessimism. I, I, I fear, I fear, and an uncertainty. And is it fear of things, do you think, inherent in the society itself, or just a fear, a xenophobic fear, a fear of the outside? Well, I remember the last, the last time that Ben visited me in Berkeley. I, the university was a kind of uh, cauldron of political excitement, not entirely to Ben's pleasure. Now, now the, the, the bubbling in the cauldron is, uh, is over. Uh, the the great mass of students, for example, feel profoundly uh, disaffected, but they don't have the sense of action. They are not activist students as you used to get five years ago. They 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 are um, they are students who who do not see really viable options. They are disaffected from the establishment, but they are not moving towards specific political positions. Do you mean that dropping out on the level of, on, a, on profound levels is taking place, dropping out intellectually, dropping out psychologically, yes. closing the doors against... Yes, it. yes, yes. And I, and I don't mean just, just um, hippies going into communes. I mean on, in, on a far wider... Across the day. Well, you've always had communes, but, but uh, all this is very interesting because one point about Middle America that struck me while I was there, uh, just about the year that, in fact, in the year of that the Truman Capote book on the Kansas murders was published in cold blood, again and again in various parts of the states I had people from Middle America, well, more or less in touch with academia to some extent too, but not always. Uh, asking one questions about what I thought about the violence in American life. Now, it seemed to me a rather odd question because we all knew, even from our childhood reading, that there had always been a great deal of violence in American life. But these people acted and talked as if they were suddenly becoming aware of it, as if they had kept a sort of Caliban down in the basement for a long time and now he was getting out and they didn't know where he came from or what to make of it. Yes. And this always puzzled me. Was it that they had shut away any past violence and had so accepted up, uh, upper and lower middle class values that uh, they just didn't want to think of this, and then all of a sudden it is. I think that the, I think that that's exactly right. I've always had an eccentric theory that uh, crimes, celebrated crimes, uh, reflect the particular moment of history in which they take place. And the crime that Capote is talking about in *In Cold Blood* is revealing and immensely secure, proper, respectable, middle American family, suddenly invaded from the outside. Now, the crime of this most recent decade is the Manson case, in which the startling thing is that the people inside the house were as strange in their own way as the people outside the house. I... No one, no one qu knows quite what to make of that case. It, it can't be reduced to the easy categories that Capote was able to reduce in cold blood. To. So violence then is perhaps now regarded as not just belonging to them, something that they may do, that people are beginning to suspect 
It's something we may do. Yes, and a, and a useful suspicion that is, because violence is a property of everyone. And is there, are there, in, is there in all this um, any sort of inherited feelings of vague guilt? Guilt, perhaps, to the Indian, as well as guilt to the black man, towards the black man? Yes, that is felt very, very strongly among uh, young people. Very strongly. To the degree that it's felt by adults, it may well be genuine, but I suspect a certain amount of sentimentality as they feel it. But that isn't true of the young. They accept it as a very genuine moral responsibility and guilt. And yet, uh, would you, would your final feeling about all this, would it be one, would 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 it be a dark light? Would it be would there be darkness in your final view of this? Uh, not with me, it wouldn't. Um, it may be that I just have a sort of optimistic temperament that has kept one up to date from cutting one's own throat and smaller problems. But uh, Marita did say that one thing that might save the United States was the possibility that the truth might be told there. Another thing is that I was always amazed in American colleges by the number of young people who, aside from their studies, were doing voluntary work that personally put me to shame, considering the sort of slouch I was when I was going to college myself. And on these good young people, and indeed on the many genuinely good and hard-working people of you know, more advanced ages, I think a country can cast hope. I hope you're right. <laughs> America, America, God shed his grace on thee and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. That was a song we all knew as children and oh boy did we believe it then. And I think maybe, you know, there... There are people who still believe it now. <laughs> <laughs> 